Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talks here at the Abbey. Over the course of the run of Frank McGuinness's Observe the Sons of Ulster Marching Towards the Somme, I've been asking members of the cast about their approach to research, their approach to these young characters steeped in a hundred-year-old context, and if their preparation was framed, formed and fed by a piece of prose, a piece of art, or by pure instinct and osmosis. What follows is a series of short interviews that gives insight, heart and a vocabulary when all words fail. Enjoy these podcasts. My name is Donal Gallery uh, and I'm playing Younger Piper. Um, and Piper is a, a bit of a fish out of water in the, in the group of eight men who go to war because he's um, from the kind of Protestant ascendancy. He's landed gentry. Um, and you sense that his, uh, his family has this great weight of history behind it of being involved in kind of military campaigns and and being very much kind of pillars of that of that society, you know what I mean? Um, and so he he is very cynical about that, and and you gather his childhood was very unhappy because he he's gay for one thing. So I think he he felt a kind of sense of being an outsider um, in his family. And, and Frank talked about his um, he had a terrible relationship with his mother. There's a line in the play where uh, McElwain says, I broke my mother's heart, and Piper says, I broke my mother's arm. And Frank made it clear that that's absolutely not a joke, um, that there was, there was that level of uh, kind of violent, um, you know, rows going on in, in their household. So he rejects all that. He doesn't want to be part of that. And I think it's, it's got to do with class and everything that he doesn't... He, he talks about his ancestors being gods. And I think in a certain sense... Uh, you know, part of that is kind of abstract and about their, their power over him. Uh, but it's also about being uh, of the upper classes and about the, the way that they control the world and society and, and the, the kind of havoc that he sees them wreaking, you know. Uh, so he, um, he rejects that and he goes to um, Paris to be a sculptor, um, but uh, finds that he, he can't do it. That I mean, the kind of... It's kind of exactly what happens is only kind of sketched out in the play. Um, it's left up to you to kind of, kind of figure it out yourself to a great extent. But um, we kind of gather that he he failed. He didn't have the talent he hoped he have he had, and and he relates that to his his ancestry that that they're kind of to blame for that. Um, and uh, and then in the in the kind of self-loathing that that follows all of that, he gets involved in prostitution and and all sorts and his life is in an absolute mess and uh and then he uh is involved in leading a, a woman to her suicide uh and uh he off the back of all that decides to end it and comes back and joins up with the Ulster 36th as a, as a means of ending his life one thing I did, uh, which seemed really important once I got cast, because I'm from Dublin, as you can tell, and um, I've been saying this in the kind of Q&As and things that we've been doing over the course of the tour. Like, growing up in Dublin, you don't really, you never really taught anything about uh, Protestant culture, Ulster Protestant culture at all. You know, it's so alien to me. Um, so when I, when I was uh, casting the part, I thought I'd better go there, I'd better go to the north, at least for a little while, and try and meet people and talk about it and so on um so and also visit some of the places important in the place so 
So I went up and, and went to uh, Portora School, which uh, Frank said Piper probably went to. Uh, and I went to Bow Island, where the, where the Janus figure is, and the Somme Heritage Museum in Belfast, and went to Armagh um, just to get a sense of kind of landscape and so on. But it was really useful seeing, um, seeing um, Loch Erne particularly, because it's so important in the play. But, it, but through the course of that trip, kind of talked to various people and started to get a, a greater sense of kind of just how complex it is. It's so unbelievably complex, the, the um, relations between everyone in the North, you know. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, tried to dig into that. And, but the impression I got is that people just didn't really want to talk about that kind of stuff, uh, you know, especially to a guy they just met, you know. Um, which is totally fair enough. Uh, but one of the, like I went to, I, I stayed in an Airbnb in, um, when I was there. And uh, I, I, I imagine maybe they might be like, who's this Dubliner coming in? And I opened the door and there's a really friendly guy. I sat down and had drinks with, with him and his wife and his brother. And it turned out that they were, he was a Catholic and she was a Protestant. And, even just that as like a first stop that kind of blew open any preconceptions about how just rigidly divided everything is you know and and um that was a kind of first little foray into understanding the complexity of it but then but then that carried on but there was all sorts of stuff i, I had no idea like the the things they talk about in the play of being uh god's chosen and that kind of stuff of the idea of it being um a kind of a promised land you know I'd never heard of that kind of stuff before. So all, all of that was really interesting and useful to get a sense of the rooted feeling that the characters have. But of course, Piper rejects that stuff. And, that, and that's uh, his whole uh, kind of journey is, is he's, resisting, um, he's resisting his heritage and resisting, you could argue, his nature or, or who he is, you know? Uh, and then at the end of the play, when they're about to when they're about to go over the top, he's finally accepted or embraced his heritage and embraced that pride uh, in being sons of Ulster and and you know and defending uh, the North for for the for the Protestant people. You know, for me to think beyond the battle was too important because because that's where I leave off with it, and uh, that's that's Sean's part of the story. Um, so I didn't I didn't look too much into into the aftermath of um, of people who'd been to the battle because that's just not the part of the story that I play, you know. Um, but I did look into the the circumstances of being in the trenches and so on, and tried to get a sense of all that. And I mean the the some heritage centres that I mentioned they have a fully uh, built trench system that they bring you on a tour through, and the Imperial War Museum has a similar thing, and there's obviously lots of lots of sources um to read about the kind of the unbelievably tough conditions that they lived in and you know having to hang their food from from rafters to keep them from rats and rats and lice being everywhere and just constantly being wet and and cold and and the most importantly the nerve shredding aspect of having you know shells going off all the time and never knowing if you're going to be the one underneath them. So it was more of that kind of stuff that that I um, did research on. 
And then I, I also went and, and uh, did a little day of sculpting. I worked with a sculptor in, in her workshop in London um, and just made a little, like a face. Actually, it's kind of similar, nowhere near as impressive, but kind of similar to the Janice face. Because um, I thought, you know, Piper's, he's rendering human figures. You, you gather from the things he says. Um, so gave that a go. It was that kind of, I suppose, so that kind of tells you that for me, it was a kind of f physical things with this part that seemed important to try and connect with. Like going to Bow Island and actually seeing those figures was so important because they're, cause they're really, there's a really particular atmosphere uh, on that island and around those figures. It was, it, there was something in the air there that had I not seen that. And, and, and also being there, I went down, there's kind of a little enclosed cemetery where they are. Uh, but then you can kind of walk around it and go down through the shrubbery and bushes and stuff down to the actual uh, shore of the lake. And I always think of that image when we're doing the play of, of looking out, because it's really the guys that I mentioned that I stayed with, they were talking about Locker and that it, it um, has no bottom. They say like apparently there's lots of undertow, so it's really dangerous to swim in. Um, so when you're, when you're looking at it, there's a, there's a kind of an eerie, haunted feel to, to it, you know. So, so I think those things are the things that ultimately were most important for me. Performance of Psalm definitely had a huge effect on, on me, uh, I think on, on the whole um, production for all of us. That was, I was listening to what Andy was saying about it, he put it really beautifully about, about the, um, the echoes out of the woods at the end when we were, when we were saying Ulster at the end. Uh, you could hear hear resounding around the the battlefield that they were on, and I don't know, there was something, yeah, kind of spine tingling about that that you'll never forget. And even just like we did it, we did it quite late, almost kind of like dangerously late, because it was it was damn near pitch dark when we finished. But it kind of really added to the atmosphere for me. It started it started raining just before it began, and there was like the amb the ambassador for, to France and everything there, and. They were all wearing ponchos and we were kind of worried that it would just start chucking it down. But luckily, just stayed at a kind of drizzle the whole time. So we're in this kind of drizzly dusk and it was just a really uh, intense and kind of moving atmosphere around the whole thing. And I remember during pairings, um, I was there. We all obviously have our scenes during pairings and then we were out of the scene kind of standing still and like looking at Ryan playing Craig it really struck me that he's in the same kind of light that they would have probably been in on the island. That it's being outdoors, surrounded by the trees, and especially being actually there um, was really, really affecting. And then during that, during that pairings bit, um, they were rehearsing for the um, centenary um, kind of memorial uh, about a mile up the road at the TF Full Monument. And we could hear the orchestra were playing Abide With Me and that was drifting across the fields of the poppies as we were doing that bit where they're all supporting each other. It was, yeah, it was incredibly affecting. And it was just a, it was just a huge privilege to do it. I think uh, Frank said in an interview there the other day that he was really happy that a hundred years later we were there, they were there sending men out to act, you know, um, and obviously Ultimately, it's 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 a play, um, but it was a privilege to kind of pay respect to to the people who died there by doing it. So, yeah, I won't forget that ever. 
I chose a little excerpt from Birdsong, uh, the Sebastian Fox book about World War I. Um, I just found it really useful because there's such vivid descriptions of, of being in the trenches and being in battle. And um, there's, there's so many factual uh, books you can read, but in, in the hands of a, an incredibly skilled writer, he really brought to life things that it wasn't easy to find kind of brought to life in other places. So, um, so I chose a little piece from the, the first day on the Somme. So this is as the, the main character, Stephen, um, goes over the top on the first day of the Somme. And also it was interesting because Stephen, the similarities between Stephen and Piper in the sense that he's, um, he's upper class, kind of upper class, but, but, but also an orphan. So uh, has in, in a different way to Piper, but it is disconnected from where he came from. Um, and he, uh, he has a kind of fatalistic, there's a, sense of, there's a certain sense of a death wish with him as well. And then like Piper, he survives. Um, so all that was kind of really interesting to see him go through the first day like Piper would and then live. The second hand of his watch in slow motion. 29 past. The whistle in his mouth his foot on the ladder. He swallowed hard and blew. He clambered out and looked around him. It was for a moment completely quiet as the bombardment ended and the German guns also stopped. Skylarks wheeled and sang high in the cloudless sky. He felt alone, as though he had stumbled on this fresh world at the instant of its creation. Then the artillery began to lay down the first barrage and the German machine guns resumed. To his left, Stephen saw men trying to emerge from the trench but being smashed by bullets before they could stand. The gaps in the wire became jammed with bodies. Behind him, the men were coming up. He saw Gray run along the top of the trench, shouting encouragement. He walked hesitatingly forward, his skin tensed for the feeling of metal tearing flesh. He turned his body sideways, tenderly, to protect his eyes. He was hunched like an old woman in the cocoon of tearing noise. Byrne was walking beside him at the slow pace required by their orders. Stephen glanced to his right. He could see a long, wavering line of khaki, primitive dolls progressing in tense, deliberate steps, going down with a silent flap of arms, replaced, falling, continuing as though walking into a gale. He tried to catch Byrne's eye but failed. The sound of machine guns was varied by the crack of snipers and the roar of the barrage ahead of them. He saw Hunt fall to his right stood bent to help him, and Stephen saw his head opening up bright red under machine gun bullets as his helmet fell away. His feet pressed onwards gingerly over the broken ground. After twenty or thirty yards there came a feeling that he was floating above his body, that it had taken on an automatic life of its own over which he had no power. It was as though he had become detached in a dream from the metal air through which his flesh was walking. In this trance there was a kind of relief, something close to hilarity. Ten yards ahead and to the right was Colonel Barkley. He was carrying a sword. Stephen went down. Some force had blown him. He was in a dip in the ground with a bleeding man, shivering. The barrage was too far ahead. Now the German guns were placing a curtain of their own. Shrapnel was blasting its jagged cones through any airspace not filled by the machine guns. All that metal will not find room enough, Stephen thought. It must crash and strike sparks above them. The man with him was screaming inaudibly. Stephen wrapped his dressing round the man's leg, then looked at himself. There was no wound. He crawled to the rim of the shell hole. There were others ahead of him. He stood up and began to walk again. 
Perhaps with them he would be safer. He felt nothing as he crossed the pitted land on which humps of khaki lay every few yards. The load on his back was heavy. He looked behind him and saw a second line walking into the barrage in no man's land. They were hurled up like waves breaking backwards into the sea. Bodies were starting to pile and clog the progress. There was a man beside him missing part of his face, but walking in the same dreamlike state, his rifle pressing forward. His nose dangled and Stephen could see his teeth through the missing cheek. The noise was unlike anything he had heard before. It lay against his skin, shaking his bones. Remembering his order not to stop for those behind him, he pressed slowly on. As the smoke lifted in front of him, he saw the German wire. It had not been cut. Men were running up and down it in turmoil, looking for a way through. They were caught in the coils where they brought down torrents of machine gun fire. Their bodies jerked up and down, twisting and jumping. Still they tried. Two men were clipping vainly with their cutters among the corpses, their movement bringing the sharp, disdainful fire of a sniper. They lay still. Thirty yards to his right there was a gap. He ran towards it, knowing it would be the focus of machine gun fire from several directions. He breathed in as he reached it, clenching for his death. His body passed through clean air and he began to laugh as he ran and ran, then rolled down into a trench, bumping his heavy pack on top of him. There was no one there. Alive, he thought. Dear God, I am alive. The war lifted from him. It is just a piece of field beneath a French heaven, he thought. There are trees beyond the noise and down in the valley is the fish-filled river. He was aware of a thirst that was flaying his throat and he took his water bottle. The warm, shaken fluid ran down inside and made him close his eyes in ecstasy. There was no one in the trench. He moved along the duckboards. It was beautifully made with high parapets, reveting as neat as Sussex weatherboards and tidy entrances to deep dugouts. He looked back towards the British line, each foot of which was pathetically exposed to fire from this superior position. Through the smoke of the German barrage, he could see the scruffy lines straggling on, driven by some slow clockwork purpose into the murder of the guns.